I'm Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is writer Catherine Hulick, who specializes in writing nonfiction books for kids on topics such as unsolved mysteries, robots, video games, artificial intelligence, ghosts, energy technology, just to name a few. She has just published Welcome to the Future, Robot Friends, Fusion Energy, Pet Dinosaurs, and more. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Before we talk about your book, Welcome to the Future, I'd like to ask you how you got started writing nonfiction books for kids. Well, I actually, you know, I've been writing books and stories since I was a little kid. I mean, I knew at the age of eight that I wanted to be an author. This is what I would have told you if you asked me when I was in elementary school. Uh, and I, I was constantly writing, but it was, I was writing fantasy type stories. Uh, and that's what I wrote all through high school and college. Um, I've written three fantasy novels, actually, none of them published, um, but they're all for kids. I mean, that's something that I, it took me a while to realize that I was writing for kids and that I liked that that was my target audience for pretty much all of my writing. And it was something I kind of fell into accidentally. I never intended to be a science writer, but I enjoyed it. Um, I was good at it. And there's a lot of demand for it, a lot more demand than fantasy stories for kids. There's tons of people out there writing, you know, fantasy fun stories, but not enough people writing about science. So I kind of embraced that and decided, you know what, you know, I'm going to put these books aside for now and really focus on the science writing because there's a need for it. There's a demand for it. And it's really, really fun. I really enjoyed, you know, writing, learning about science and talking to people about science and, and connecting with kids about it. Your book, Welcome to the Future, yeah. explores 10 ways that technology could alter our way of life. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the technologies you chose to focus on in the book? Yeah, I mean, this, uh, my favorite thing to write about is technology. It's just fascinated me for such a long time, especially artificial intelligence. I mean, that's kind of where the idea for this book grew out of. I really wanted to write a book just about AI, but I had trouble um, selling that idea. So <laughs> I kind of morphed into something that would be about lots of different types of technology. But just the idea that computers could think someday or that they could be thinking right now in some way that's totally alien to us has just grasped my imagination ever since I was in, you know, high school and college. It's just something I've always loved thinking about and wondering about. And uh, so that was where this book came from. It's just that idea, like, what does it mean for us as humans if our technology, you know, changes in these really, you know, astounding ways? Like if our computers become able to think or be conscious, if our, um, you know, robots can do whatever we want them to do and take care of everything so we don't have to work. You know, what happens if we um, have medicines that allow us to live, you know, so much longer than we already do, you know, for hundreds or thousands of years? What happens if we, um, you know, can 3D print anything we need on demand? You know, these, I've always loved wondering about this stuff. And this book gave me an opportunity to, you know, find out (laughs) as much as is possible. It's not really possible to know what the future will bring, but um, I I tried. (sighs) Your topics include robots, cities in space, living forever, endless clean energy, food for all. In investigating the feasibility of some of these ideas, was there anything that really surprised you? Yeah, I think the thing that really, that I learned through working on this book that I think is going to be the next big thing in technology is basically... um, the technology of life, like engineering life, engineering living things, engineering microbes, engineering cells um, for so many different purposes. Like there's, you know, 
I, I think just genetic engineering and synthetic biology in general is going to be the next big, like we've had the Silicon age recently where, you know, we make better and better computers, but I think the technology of the future is going to be life-based. It's going to be engineering living things to make our world better or hopefully better, <laughs> but yes, engineering living things so that we'll have microbes that produce, you know, chemicals, foods, all sorts of other things we need. We'll have, you know, engineered cells that go inside our bodies to keep tabs on our systems. And these are things aren't going to be entire. There's going to be a mix of like alive and technology. I don't know what we're going to call these things, but, <laughs> but they're going to be technology that is alive or is in some sense living. And that to me is really where things are going. Are these things feasible now or and yes. are they actually occurring right now? Some, yes. Some of them already exist. In fact, the Impossible Burger and all of these new meats that are coming out that are vegetarian based, um, a lot of them, the, the reason they taste like meat is because they have these vats of of yeast cells that have been genetically engineered to produce heme, which is a, a protein or not heme. It's not a protein. It's a part of um, the blood cell that makes meat taste meaty. It like has iron in it. It makes it taste bloody. Um, but they now they got this from the roots of a soy plant. I guess the roots of a soy plant produce a little bit of this heme and they genetically engineered yeast to produce that. Uh, so now they can get it without any animals involved and they can put it into these products to make them taste just like meat. So that's an example of synthetic biology at work that's happening right now. And people are consuming it, um, which I think is super cool. I don't think it's <laughs> I don't think it's something to be worried about in this case at all. I think it's a great thing. Can you talk about the process of researching the topics in your book? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like how I would go about writing a chapter? Yeah. Like how Uh do you, you know, these are kind of wild (laughs) things, teleportation, um, (laughs) you know, genetic engineering. How do you find out what is actually feasible? Well, in my time as a science writer, you know, I've been doing this for over 10 years. I've come across a lot of these ideas and stories already. So I mean, a lot in a lot of the chapters, I already had an idea of what's out there and what's feasible, because I've written about it before, like fusion, I'd already written quite a lot about fusion energy. So I already knew pretty much what was going on in that area. And I just needed to update myself. But for other things, I was starting more from scratch. And my first step was always the library, I would go to my, you know, online search window for my local library, type in whatever it is that I'm writing about synthetic biology, or, you know, longevity, or, you know, genetic engineering, whatever topic is that I'm tackling and just order like 12 books. And I don't read all of them, but I, you know, at least one, I'll usually read all the way through. And then the other ones I'll, you know, peruse and pick out things that look interesting. But that, that is where I start is with books. And I look on, you know, I read online as well, but I find that getting a book for adults that someone else has already written about the topic is the best way for me to get into it and get started and to find people I'd like to talk to. Cause my second step after reading books and or, websites and articles is to find at least three or four experts who are working in this area, who are doing, you know, specific projects. Um, For example, you know, I I talk to people who are 3D printing human organs or attempting to, it hasn't been done yet, but I talk to people who are working in that area or reconstructing um, lungs. Like it's not just printing whole organs, but there are people who are taking lungs, taking all the old cells out of them and trying to put new cells in. I would say like 95% of the time, they're so excited that someone wants to, someone cares about their research and wants to tell other people about it. 
I just want to mention that you have a lot of the interviews that you did for this book on your website. Yeah. So that series, I called it Welcome to the Future, the interviews. And I decided to do that because I had just, you know, a lot of times I do an hour long interview with someone who's just this like amazing, really smart person working on something that's super cool. And I'd only be able to put like one quote from it into my book or maybe like two sentences about what they were working on. So I thought, you know, I have all this content that's just languishing on my computer and I want to do something with it. So that's where the idea for this came from. So a couple of the ones I have up so far, I talked to Ayana Howard, who's a roboticist and AI expert. Um, she's the Dean of the College of Engineering at Ohio State University. And she also is the author of the book, Sex, Race, and Robots, How to Be Human in the Age of AI. Uh, So one of the things she focuses on is, you know, she's not just an excellent scientist, but she's also interested in ethics, which is kind of the, the secondary focus of my book is, is how do we create this technology in a way that's going to be good for all of humanity? That's not going to, you know, lead to a future with, you know, evil machines, as you see in the movies, (laughs) which I don't think is a very realistic future, but there are other futures that aren't so great that we want to try to avoid. I talked to Kiran Musanuru, who's a doctor, about gene editing. So I got into some of the issues with, um, you've probably heard of uh, designer babies. Um, that's one of the other fears people have about the future, that we're going to be choosing traits for our children um, based on genetic <laughs> engineering. Is that true? It's it's true to a certain extent. I mean, it seems like the the ability to choose something like athletic ability or intelligence or things like that, we may never be able to do it because it's just so complex. Um, But the thing that will be possible and I think should be possible and should be done is the ability to, you know, basically cure genetic conditions before a child is born. Like you could edit the genome to prevent a child from inheriting, you know, a propensity towards certain cancers or, or even a, you know, a harmful condition that would affect them from birth. So I think that's where most doctors are, are focusing right now. But then there's, of course, tricky ethical issues with things like deafness. Do you edit out deafness? I mean, that's a huge question that I'm not really the right person to talk to, but I mean, I know that there's a thriving deaf community that would feel like that is an assault on their culture. So it's, these are really hard things. Like where do you draw the line between what's medical or what's medically necessary and what's, you know, uh, actually going to be an improvement to this child's life. So it's, it's tough stuff and I don't have the answers, but I, you know, these interviews really helped me understand better what's going on. And, and when it comes to this type of gene editing stuff, like right now, we're still not good enough at it to make it ethical at any point to edit human infants before birth, because right now there's still too many dangers that um, something would go wrong. You describe at some point the process of what it would take for a robot to make a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> and it was fascinating because there were so many decisions and perceptions involved in making a sandwich. For example, starting out with what is a refrigerator? Mm -hmm. This is actually the topic of an article I'm working on. I just started it for Science News for Students. So I'm going to be doing an article kind of in conjunction with the release of my book um, that goes a little more deeply into that exact topic. And the way I see the article opening is with this idea of chess that Computers can defeat even the most expert human chess players, no problem. But if you were to put a robot in front of a chessboard and like a two-year-old on the other side, the two-year-old would be way better than the robot at picking up and moving the pieces. Like this is something <laughs> that a two-year-old can, can pick up and move this piece from one square to another, but a robot would have a lot of trouble with that. 
Um, unless they've been specifically trained to move that specific piece to a specific place. But if you wanted any robot to be able to just pick up any object and move it to anywhere else, this is going to be extremely hard for them. And it's not just hard because of the mechanics of imitating a hand. It's also hard because of the contextual nature of picking up a piece, right? Right. All of the cues that you need, which seems the crux in a way of a lot of ethical problems, right? Is that humans can think about context. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Humans have common sense. That's one of the points of my book that we have common sense and we don't think about it because it's so obvious to us. But, and the other part of it is we also have, you know, many, many years of um, evolution behind our species. So a lot of the things that seem easy to us actually aren't easy at all. Like making visual sense of the world. That is not easy. The, I and the brain, you know, work together to do that. And picking things up is not easy. Babies drop things all the time. Young kids drop things all the time. We just don't know it's hard because we've practiced our entire lives to get really good at it. So these these things actually are very, very hard. Walking around is very hard. We practice for several years to be able to do that as kids. And we have a bunch of years of evolution that have, you know, trained our bodies even before birth to be primed to be able to do this eventually. So these things are much more complicated than we realize because we've practiced them so much and they have become second nature. And it's also interesting that they involve decisions that we may not consider initially Mm -hmm. ethical decisions, but in fact are. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's a big part of the robot chapter as well. Like I I point out that if, you know, you tell your robot to go get the peanut butter and the cat is sitting in front of the cabinet door, you know, a human would realize immediately, like, I can't open the door. I've got to either move the cat or, you know, get something else first, or I've got to do something because I don't want to whack the cat in the head with the door. So a, a robot has to be able to notice that it has to be able to go beyond its task of getting the peanut butter to like, notice the rest of the world and figure out, you know, are there any obstacles? It has to predict the future a little bit. It has to think about the future and think about what's going to happen if I continue in this action. And it has to be able to make that choice of, you know, it's not okay to hit the cat in the head, but if it's just, you know, a roll of paper towels, then probably it's fine, you know, to open the door and whack the paper towels. So there's an issue about what's okay to harm. (laughs) Right, right? exactly. Like all these things are so much more complicated than it seems at first glance. And humans, you know, we, we exist in the world every day from the time we're infants and we gain this knowledge about the world that's called common sense understanding. And that's what robots and computers do not have yet and likely aren't going to have for a long time. And they probably can't, um, interact with us in a, you know, fluid and normal manner until they have it. It affects their language. It affects their ability to do things safely. It affects their ability to get around everything. And I would imagine that even beyond common sense understanding, some of the ethical considerations are things that scientists themselves don't have clear answers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, and they don't. That's 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 a really tricky thing is what ethics are these robots going to follow? Like, especially with self-driving cars, you hear that coming up. Um, and there's all sorts of ridiculous situations people propose. Like, you know, do you want to go down this path and kill one person or go down this path and kill like 10 people? And, you know, what if there's a child on this side and, you know, older people on this side? And they, they throw out these crazy scenarios that would never happen in real life. But there are there are scenarios that would happen in real life that would be important to consider. Um, Like, do you value the life of your driver or the life of people outside the car? Like that's a 
if, or you wouldn't really call it a driver, your passenger, you know, which do you prefer to protect the passenger or people who are outside on the road on the sidewalk or whatever? What if the person outside isn't following the laws? You know, it's like, there's all these very tricky things that come into play that, you know, it's, there aren't good answers to, there really aren't. And it's going to be up to all of us to, to inform that and to, take part in making of these decisions. I mean, that's kind of one of the big points of my book is that we all have the responsibility to learn about what's happening with these technologies and to make our voices heard, to decide what we want, what we think the ethics of these machines and robots should be, and to help make that decision, especially kids who are, you know, inheriting this world and are going to be the ones who create the future. Are ethical considerations and ethical thinking part of scientific research? Uh, Yes, I think they could be more so. Pretty much every scientist I talk to cares about this stuff. You know, when I ask them, they've thought about it and they have opinions and they have ideas. uh, So they're not, they're not doing their work in a vacuum of like, oh, you know, this isn't going to have any impact on the world. They understand what the impacts are, but they're kind of so removed from these distant futures that it's not that much of a concern to them. Like someone who's making AI now knows that no robot is going to get up and decide to like disobey the person using it because that just makes absolutely no sense. It's like a toaster deciding to freeze your bread. It just can't do it. Like it's just not possible. Like your your robots today just it's that impossible for them to decide to like take over the world. Like they just there's absolutely no way it could happen. Um, and so to a lot of scientists, it's just so far removed that it's not really worth their time to bother thinking about it right now. But they do care about them and they do, I think they're glad that other people are thinking about them. Do children have the same questions as adults with respect to the future? Well, I think that they're a lot more optimistic in general and a lot more excited about the possibilities. And that's something I tried to be very careful with in this book, like especially in my chapter about dinosaurs, because kids, you know, I have a six-year-old who's obsessed with dinosaurs and, you know, to him, it would just be the coolest thing if we could bring back anything, including a T-Rex, you know, it's just not, it just doesn't occur to him, you know, maybe there's some downsides to having you know giant human eating creatures stomping around. I think that you can embrace that excitement while still talking about the the implications. So that's what I tried to do in my book is, yes, it's super exciting that we could someday do this and maybe will someday do this, but, you know, what might happen because of that. So I really try to take that sense of wonder and imagination and use that to help kids imagine the different paths we could go down and the different ways these ideas could influence the world. You know, one thing that I've learned in my writing about science for kids is they can understand anything. They're very smart. It's the trick is you got to keep their attention and keep them interested and keep them, um, keep it relevant to their world and who they are and what they care about. So I never talk down to kids ever. I, I put it out, you know, I, I tell all the science exactly like it is and all the ethics, you know, is exactly like they are. And, uh, I, you know, I really, I respect kids and I want them to, to have the truth. Are ethical considerations part of education for children? I hope they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one thing that happens sometimes is, you know, people will try to make things a little too optimistic for kids. Uh, like that's one thing that I find a little bit disappointing. Like in my energy chapter, I find a lot of content for kids is very much, you know, on the saying things like, you know, renewable energy is going to save the world. All we have to do is stop using fossil fuels and switch to wind, solar, and, you know, geothermal, and we'll be fine. And that's not, that's just not going to work like that. Like there's just, there's too many other things going on that just aren't going to make that 
kind of total switch possible as a solution to what's happening right now. So I, I, I really think kids deserve more nuance than that. They deserve more truth than that. Why do you think there is such distrust for science and scientific thinking? Oh, it makes me so sad. You know, I, I, I think the reason there's distrust for science and scientific thinking is that most people just don't know the difference between real science and pseudoscience. And they don't know the difference between well thought out and well presented statistics and statistics that are taken out of context and, you know, used emotionally to, to make a political point. And I think that there's just not a good there's the critical thinking of, of our world in general needs a lot of help. Like people need to be able to look at things and think about them um, scientifically. Like I think people just don't know what science is and they don't recognize it when they see it. And so to them, science and scientific knowledge gets grouped in with every other fact that's being thrown at them through social media, through the news, through, um, you know, their Twitter feed, all this stuff arrives and looking exactly the same to an outside person, you know, the, the, the fake news is mixed in with the recent research paper that's been peer reviewed and took like five years to write. And that's next to some celebrity who just said something off the cuff with absolutely no research and no understanding of anything. And to the average person, those things look identical and they can't tell which one is which it's, you know, and that to me is a very terrifying world to be in. (laughs) And I hope that we find some way around this, that we find some way to sort our knowledge into things that have been vetted and gone through a lot of, you know, critical thinking and a lot of study and things that have just been, you know, thrown out there into the void with no forethinking at all. You know, it strikes me that in both science fiction, as well as in the practice of scientific research, that up until recently, both of those had been dominated by white men. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that race and gender of the people imagining our futures has shaped the kind of future we imagine? I think it's mattered a lot. And, and one thing I focused on in this book um, was trying to find people to interview who were not all white men. You know, I, I had a chart that I kept and I, you know, marked off, you know, how, how diverse my sources were and really sought out voices that, you know, maybe hadn't been allowed into the conversation in the past on purpose to make sure that I wasn't, you know, just sticking with the same old story. Um, I think that having only white men in the conversation has, has, um, I mean, the type of future they imagine, I, I guess the chapter that best illuminated this for me was the one on space exploration. So space exploration is in a way a continuation of colonization. We even use the word colonize to go to the moon and Mars. And I took that word out of my book after reading Danielle Wood's research. Um, She's at the MIT Media Lab and runs the Space Enabled Group. And um, she has some great arguments for why we shouldn't why we should avoid the colonial mindset in space, even though there's nobody living on the moon or Mars is, you know, we're pretty darn sure there's no one living there. There may be some microbes on Mars, but we don't know that yet. Um, (laughs) It's still, there's still mistakes of uh, colonization that could happen again, just in, you know, one, the country with the power and the prestige, just basically deciding what happens with this planet without the rest of the world having any voice in it. Um, Like she, Danielle brought up that the moon is sacred to many cultures. There are people who would disagree with building on it for that reason. Um, And that, you know, there's a fair argument to be made that their voices deserve to be heard, that they deserve some sort of say in what happens there, that maybe it's not the decision of the country with the most power and money of what happens on the moon, but the decision of, you know, humanity as a whole. And how do we make sure that that happens? Um, 
so that's what it means to avoid a, a colonial mindset when it comes to space, space exploration. And I think that's what in the past science was about, you know, who's the first to discover it and who's the, you know, the, they get to put their name on this place. They get to be the one to own it. And I think that's what we're trying to get beyond now um, is not just making these discoveries for your own personal prestige or the prestige of your country, um, but for everyone and making sure everyone is involved and everyone to the extent possible gets some sort of say. It just occurred to me as as you were speaking that there's another issue in the practice of science that I think determines a lot of what gets researched, which is Mm -hmm. money. Yes. Yeah. No, it's true. You know, (laughs) you throw money at it, you tend to get there. I mean, that's why we went to the moon. It wasn't because we had better technology. It's because we threw a ton of money at it. Um, and everyone I talk to in fusion says, you know, we could have fusion reactors if we just threw a ton of money at it, but no one's been willing to throw that much money at it or enough money at it to, uh, to solve the problem. So it does matter a lot. Um, yeah. So this is also <laughs> where ethics, um, and politics begin to intersect, right? Yes. yes. The question yep. of, of what we decide is worth mm-hmm. spending time and yes. resources to develop. Yep. Yes. Yeah, no, and that's where, you know, it's not just scientists who are going to decide this future, but policymakers, and probably more so when it comes to ethics, the policymakers who will decide, you know, what we focus on and what the rules are for these technologies uh, and how they are part of our lives. So, yeah, that's that's something I didn't put it in the book too much because I like the technology and the science more than the policy and the politics, but I do mention it if you at the end, I definitely mention it that, you know, that's a big part of it. And for someone who's not scientifically inclined, that's an area where you can make a difference is in, you know, persuading your leaders or becoming a leader yourself to, uh, to take the, the, um, the approach that you think is most ethical and most appropriate and most beneficial. Today on Disobedient Femmes, I have been speaking to science writer, Catherine Bulick, who has just published Welcome to the Future, Robot Friends, Fusion Energy, Pet Dinosaurs, and more. Prior to this, she's also published Strange But True, 10 of the World's Greatest Mysteries Explained. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? Uh, So you can follow me on Twitter at khulick, K-H-U-L-I-C-K. My website is katherinehulick.com. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, so my Instagram is Catherine underscore Hulick. And I do have a TikTok account, although I haven't been that active on there. But if you want, if you're on TikTok and you want to try it out, let me find. So that one is, um, let me get that for you. Yeah. So on Instagram, on, sorry, on TikTok, I'm Catherine underscore Hulick as well. So I've just started that one. It's not that active yet, but I'm trying it out because a lot of kids are on there. Uh, So that's where you can find out more about me and my work. And I also have an email list that you can sign up for on my website if you want to get updates on my events uh, and my books. I will be, I'm having a book, uh, book launch event in, at the Unlikely Story in uh, Mass, in Plainville, Massachusetts on October 28th. Thank you so much for being on Disobedient Femmes today. Thank you. I am Suzanne Legrand. Each week on Disobedient Femmes, I bring you interviews with amazing women, writers, artists, and activists who are reimagining the world. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and let us know what you think by leaving a comment. Thanks.